Morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone in here. Welcome, everybody that's online. Uh, again, my name is Mike. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, if you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 7 in your Bibles. And as you're doing so, uh, as a reminder, something we often note around here is that uh, life is a series of choices, right? Some choices may seem like fairly inconsequential, like what shirt to wear in the morning or what to eat for breakfast. But other choices in our lives, they feel like they chart the very course of our lives. Should we go to college or, or not? And if so, where do we go? Should we get married? And if so, to whom should we marry? Or should we buy this home or not or rent? Do we take this new job, go after that promotion? Do we move away to a new place or stay where we are? So life is full of these kind of big choices, and I've made some of my own. You know, I headed off to Texas A&M for my undergrad. Uh, don't hold it against me. Uh, after that, I went to seminary and then decided to enter into full-time vocational ministry. Uh, I, dating Aaron and choosing to marry her then stepping out of vocational ministry, then back into vocational ministry, and ultimately to grab our family and all our things and pack everything up and move from Texas to Virginia. Those are life-charting choices. So for a moment, I, right now, I want you, think back over your life right now, just real quickly. What are some of those big life-charting choices of your life that directed your path to even this moment right now? Well, as we approach the end of our sermon series, as Bill talked about, uh, called Reorder, it's about Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And we're at the tail end of his message. And at the tail end, Jesus is going to press upon the crowds there, and even us today, that we all have a choice before us to make. And it's actually the biggest and most significant choice of our lives. It's not a choice about career or a choice about our home or even a choice about our family. No, it's the most important choice we will ever face is whether we are living for God's kingdom or our own. It's the biggest of all choices that not only charts the course of our lives, but ultimately charts the course of our eternity. So Jesus presses the crowds today and us to make our choice. So we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount together, and the whole sermon by Jesus has been opening his hearers to a reality beyond their imagining. He tells them of a divine kingdom that's right here among them, a kingdom not of this world, but of God. And it flips everything upside down. It reorders everything about them. It's a kingdom where the blessed life is not found in self-exaltation and self-proving, an attempt to validate ourselves with money and power and influence, but rather a blessed life found in humility, in a true hunger for God and His righteousness, in showing others mercy, kindness, and peace. It's a kingdom not aiming to build comfort, but striving for holiness, and is even willing to suffer for the sake of goodness. It's a kingdom that stands out in this world like a piercing beam of light driving away the darkness. It's a kingdom where good deeds aren't masking evil hearts, 
but where outward actions and inward motivations match in holy integrity. It's a kingdom where acts of worship are about how great God is and not about how great we are doing them. It's where the needy among us find welcome and abundance. It's a kingdom where fears and anxieties melt in the warmth of our Heavenly Father's loving care for us. A kingdom where our Father seeks us and woos us to seek Him back. It's the divine kingdom we were made for. But it's a kingdom that our self-centered, unworthy hearts cannot attain or even desire to enter into ourselves. And so Jesus calls that crowd and calls us today to a choice, an invitation, even a warning from the true king to either accept entrance into his kingdom or to try to hold on to our own. And he speaks of this choice in a series of twos before us, two paths, two trees, and two houses that Bill read about. So last week we saw from Elder Tom, two paths, a narrow path that leads to life and a wide path that leads to death. Today, we're going to see two trees, a good tree with good fruit and a bad tree with bad fruit. And in in a little bit, in a few weeks, we're going to see two houses, one house built on strong rock and another house built on weak sand, all pointing to make a choice. And of all the big life charting choices we make, nothing comes close to the choice Jesus puts before them and us today. Whose kingdom are we going to live for, his or ours? So let's look today at that choice together, specifically the choice between the good and bad trees of true and false teachers. And as we do so, we're going to ask ourselves three questions. What are the false teachers? What is the bad fruit, and how do we choose the good tree? So follow along as I uh, read again our passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, and you can follow along on the screen as I read. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So let's dive in together by beginning with what are these false prophets or these false teachers that Jesus is talking about? So to help us understand, Jesus actually opens this section with a warning. Did you catch that? He says, beware of false prophets. Now that word beware in Greek means to be in a continuous state of readiness about coming danger, not a state of anxious fear about potential danger, but a state of sober-minded preparedness for the real dangers around us. But even in this warning, you'll notice Jesus operates in some presuppositions, three assumed 
realities that he expects the crowds right there to share with him. One of them is this, that there is such thing as objective truth. A transcendent truth that is above us and outside of us, not defined by us or by looking inside of us, but truth that we are all universally bound to, whether we accept it or not. Second, that with truth, there's also falsehoods, things that stand in opposition to and denial of the truth. And the danger is when we confuse the two. And lastly, that we are in a war zone where truth and falsehoods are the weapons of warfare. And the battle is fought, fought over us, the souls and lives of men and women. So Jesus brings this warning that in, in this battle that we're all in and this warning of false prophets. And he uses two images to describe them, wolves and trees. So what does Jesus tell us about these false prophet, false teacher, wolves and trees? Well, I appreciate how theologian Danny Aiken breaks down this passage in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount uh, by telling us that here Jesus actually tells us three things about false teachers. They are deceptive, that they can be detected, and that they will ultimately be destroyed. Deceptive, detected, and destroyed. And if someone finds three points about a Bible passage that all start with the same letter, you know it's true. Yeah. Right, okay, so we can bank on it. No, but I, I believe he is right. So the first thing that Jesus tells us about these false teachers is that they are deceptive. By using the imagery of a flock of sheep being infiltrated by ravenous, ferocious wolves who are dressed in their best sheep costumes. Well, what is Jesus saying here? He is saying this, that while there are clear, false teachers everywhere in the world, it's not those outside of the walls of the church that are the most dangerous to us but those inside. It's not those teachers and preachers of other religions or those who rail against the church in Jesus, spouting clear lies and falsehoods like there is no God or that the matrix is real, like that kind of lie. Those are not who we should be the most on guard against. Those wolves look like wolves and are out there. Who are the most dangerous? the wolves among us in here within the church walls who at first glance look harmless and innocent like sheep. They look like us. But inside are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are those that, that claim Christianity, that quote the Bible, that profess even a faith in Jesus. And like Milt will share with us next week, might even be active in fruitful ministry, but they don't truly know or love Jesus. So while on the outside they look like sheep that desire to promote God's glory and want to love his people, inside they are wolves desiring to steal God's glory and consume God's sheep. And their deception has been around from the beginning. If you go back in the Old Testament, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy and God's law, God's pretty serious about these false prophets. Because when they are caught in their lies, what's the punishment? Death. He puts to death false prophets. The prophet Jeremiah speaks consistent warnings against false prophets desiring to lead God's people away from the Lord. 
and all the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Satan deceived Adam and Eve to stop trusting the truth of God and believe the lie that they could live without him. Even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament speaks of these deceptive wolves among God's people as he shares with the church in Corinth that the warning against false teachers wasn't just for the past, but for today as well when he says this, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. These false teachers for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. But you see that? Just like Satan deceived Eve by cunning, so do false teachers deceive among us. But did you also see what he said? Like when we imagine Satan or the devil in our minds, when we picture him, what do you think about like a man in a red tights, you know, with like horns and a pitchfork and hooves for feet and like a tail? No. Paul reminds us that the devil, the father of lies, disguises himself like an angel of light, like something good, noble, and right. It's the ultimate deception. And likewise, so do his servants, wolves hiding in sheep's clothing. And these wolves, what is their ultimate goal, their ultimate pursuit in their deception? It's the same thing as Satan, to steal the glory that belongs to God alone and give it anywhere else. The glory that we just sang about that God deserves, give it anywhere else but him. It's to deceive God's sheep into giving that honor, that power, the worship, the riches, the very devotion of their lives that belong to God alone and give it to them or anyone else. Or as Paul just said, they deceive to lead God's people astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that's why in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul gives the warning to the Ephesian elders he's with as he prepares to leave them by saying this. He tells the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. See, Paul says, pay careful attention. Sounds a lot like Jesus saying, beware. Fierce wolves will come in among you, in your midst, to draw away the disciples. Draw away from what? A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So time doesn't permit us to walk through the rest of the Gospels or 
the books of 2 Peter or 1 and 2 John or the book of Jude or any other passages on false teachers, but the point is the same. False teachers are real. False teachers are among the church, and false teachers are dangerous because like wolves in sheep's clothing, they are deceptive. So again, our question, what are false teachers? Deceptive, ravenous wolves hidden among us, God's sheep trying to lead us away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So then the next question would be, well, how do we recognize them among us? Well, Jesus anticipated that you'd ask that. (laughs) And that's actually his second image, saying you'll know false teachers because they are bad trees with bad fruit. Look again at our passage. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Jesus says false teachers are not just deceptive, but they're detectable. And we can detect them by their fruit. So what is the bad fruit from these bad trees? Well, it probably doesn't take much explaining to understand that when it comes to trees, the fruit of a tree is the evidence of what kind of tree it is. The fruit, you could say, is the outward expression of the inward nature of a tree. So you know it's an apple tree because it makes... Man, you guys are doing great. You know it's an orange tree because it produces? Right. Apples, apple trees don't make oranges. Jesus tells us thorn bushes don't make grapes. You know a tree by its fruit, and you know a teacher by theirs. So again, what is this bad fruit from bad trees that the crowds should be able to recognize, Jesus says? And to answer this, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of scholarly debate, to be honest, about what these bad fruits are. And a lot of godly people have different interpretations. But what I think is the best to understand the bad fruits that Jesus is talking about here, that his crowds should be able to detect and recognize, we have to look at Jesus in the context of this message, where he is in this moment with this crowd. Because here we are at the conclusion, at the climax, at the crescendo of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a message that a few verses later you'll read, it says, it leaves the crowds astounded, amazed, awestruck at what they just heard. And we're here at the end, again, like we said, Jesus is calling them to make a great choice, the great choice of their lives, between the narrow path of life or the broad path to death, between building our lives on the solid rock of his kingdom or the dissolving sands of our own. He is calling them to choose his kingdom or another. So Jesus here is saying that the bad fruit is any teaching that diverts or denies or distorts this message. The message of our need for Jesus, our need for his kingdom, and how we enter into it. That distorts the message that this kingdom of God we long for and that we were made for is a kingdom we can only enter into by surrender. Every other kingdom tells you, tells you you get it by conquering. Jesus tells, me, tells us you get this kingdom by surrendering, by abandonment, 
by releasing our own attempts to prove or validate ourselves, by laying down our attempts to control and display the worth of our lives through our own little kingdoms we try to build, to repent from the belief that on our own we are good enough, that we are smart enough, powerful enough, successful enough, attractive enough, religious enough, Christian enough, a good enough parent, spouse, child, employee, pastor, whatever, that we're good enough in our own little kingdoms. And that is the wide path many are on. It is the foundation of sin that many are building on, and it leads to destruction. A kingdoms of self, salvations of self. And Jesus is saying, if you want to find your life for real, lose it. If you want to live, then you got to die to yourself. And if you want to be in my kingdom, you have to lay yours down. Jesus will say later on in the Gospels, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one enters into his kingdom but through me. So the truth, the good fruit from the good teacher of a good tree is this, that salvation, that entering into the kingdom of God is by invitation only, a gift of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or, to put it in the Apostle Paul's terms, bad fruit is any teaching other than a sincere and pure devotion to Christ a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And this bad fruit of false teaching, sometimes called even false gospels, have infiltrated the church. So let me give you a couple examples of these bad fruits, false gospel, false teachings. And some of you may have even heard these before, are grown up in places where this was the message of hope that you heard. The first is what I would call the be better gospel. Again, some of us grew up in some very traditional or hardline churches that said, you are a sinner. And for God to love you, stop sinning. (laughs) Be better. Get your act together. Clean yourself up. And if you can be good enough, if you can be better, if you can stop sinning, then God will love you. And the be better gospel distorts sin and and the call for obedience into this works-based gospel that has us saving ourselves by proving ourselves through our good works, even quoting scriptures and claiming Jesus in the process. But in reality, it's a gospel that has no need for Jesus. No need for grace. No need for a cross or a resurrection because ultimately my salvation is just up to me. And it's a damning false gospel of bad fruit because not only can we never be good enough to earn our righteousness before God, to think we could is a sin. No, the bad fruit of a be better gospel needs to be repented of and so we confess the truth of a he is better gospel. Jesus is my righteousness. His works, not mine. I am saved not by what I've done, but by what he did for me. He lived the sinless life I should have lived. He died the death on the cross for sin that I deserve. And he rose again in victory over sin and its curse. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
My righteousness is not found in me being better, but that I belong to Jesus. He is my better. So that's one false gospel by wolves that's creeped into the church. But here's a second. This one's growing in popularity. The UBU gospel. So if the be better gospel tells us that the way to eliminate our sin is to be better, to stop sinning, the UBU gospel says the best way to eliminate your sin is stop calling it sin. That what God wants most for us is for us to accept ourselves, be true to ourselves, love ourselves. So whatever life we want to live, whatever identity we want to hold, whatever dream we want to pursue, as long as it makes us fulfilled, then that's what God wants for you. And again, we'll quote some Bible verses out of context, but it's another version of a cross-less gospel where there is no need for confession, no need for repentance or acknowledgement of sin because there is ultimately really no sin. Where the call for Jesus, the true call for Jesus, remember when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, has been replaced by promote yourself, make up your plan and follow your heart. It's a false gospel where we conform Jesus into our image instead of being made into his image. It's the bad fruit of the UBU false gospel, and it needs to disintegrate in the light of the true UB new gospel. Where the apostle, like the apostle Paul says, the old me before I knew Jesus that was building my own kingdom, running from God and replacing God in my life, that me is gone. It died with Jesus on that cross. And just like Jesus rose again to new life, so did I. The moment I believed I was made a new creation, the old me is gone, the new me is here, and the life I live now, I live by faith in and for the glory of Jesus, my King and Savior, who made me new. And there are a ton more bad fruit false gospels out there. Too many for us to have time for. The prosperity gospel the me-centered God gospel, the Jesus is one way gospel, the political gospel, the social gospel, and more. And unfortunately, there's too many that we don't have time for, like I said. But here's what we need to remember. We can recognize and detect bad teachers, bad trees with their bad fruit because bad fruit is any teaching other than a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Because again, friends, if you've been with us walking through the Sermon on the Mount, you've walked through this whole message for months and months, and this whole message on the Sermon on the Mount could be distilled. That Jesus is saying to the crowds and saying to us simply this, it's not about us. Our lives are not about us. It's not about us building our kingdom. It's not about us acquiring wealth and power and prestige. It's not about living to boast in our goodness while hiding our sinfulness. It's not about trying to control our lives and the fear and anxiety when we realize we can't. It's not about drawing attention to ourselves, but about our lives pointing to God. And it's not about living for our own temporary, tiny kingdoms, but that our lives are folded into the grand and great and eternal kingdom of God. In short, 
The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, stop trying to save yourself. You will never be enough on your own. Your kingdom will never be enough. You need a new king. You need a savior. You need a rescue. And I am it. Surrender to my grace. And that is the good fruit of a good teacher. It's the narrow path. It's the solid foundation. It's the entrance to the kingdom. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, nothing else. We bring nothing to the table. So false teachers will come in and be deceptive, but their bad fruits will be detected. And ultimately, those false teachers without repentance and turning to the same grace of Jesus we all need, they will be destroyed and suffer the fires of the judgment of God in hell. Jesus says this, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fire is judgment, God's wrath against evil. Friends, God is serious about truth. He is serious about the glory of his name. And he, as we see, he is serious about those who would seek to pull us away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Okay, so now it makes a little more sense why Jesus says, beware. This is serious stuff. But friends, remember, Jesus says, beware. He doesn't say, be afraid. He doesn't say, be overwhelmed. But beware, be prepared. And the best way to be prepared against the dangers of the bad trees and false teachers is by choosing the good tree. So how do we choose the good tree? Well, the good tree is all about knowing and trusting in the true good tree, the true good teacher, Jesus. If we are sheep in and among a flock and there are wolves in our midst, then what do we as sheep need most? To be safely near and know our true and good shepherd. Jesus even said, our security in his flock is all about this. He says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Follow me, not the crowds down the wide path to death, not the deceptive teachers, the wolves and bad trees. No, they follow me. So how do we follow Jesus, our shepherd? How do we follow the truth? How do we choose the good tree and know and discern against the bad fruit? Well, simply put, again, knowing the truth is all about truly knowing Jesus. So let me give you a few thoughts in an unfairly short amount of time how we choose the good tree is by knowing Jesus in at least three places. It's the word, the church, and the spirit. So let me explain again all too quickly, okay? The first and best way to know Jesus and to be anchored in the truth 
is by committing ourselves to knowing and rooting our lives in God's word, in scripture, in the Bible. It's our best line of defense against falsehood. It is the authoritative true word of God. And how important is it that we know and root ourselves in the word of God? Well, did you know that Jesus, when he was on earth, before he went to the cross, if you're a Christian in here, do you know he prayed for you? For you specifically, John 17. If you're a Christian here, Jesus prayed for you. And this is what he said as he lifted his voice up to the Father. He said of us, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, this prayer is, Father, set them, set us apart in this world by making them people of the truth. And your word is that truth that will set them apart. The Bible tells us God's word is living and active. It's authored by God through the hands of men. It makes us wise into salvation. It encourages, corrects, trains, and equips us. It pierces our soul and ultimately leads us to a relationship with the God who made and saved us. It is our first line of defense against false teaching. And that's why we see in Acts 17, again, when the apostle Paul was taking the gospel hope of Jesus, teaching it, to Jewish audiences in a place called Berea. It says that after he uh, was teaching the crowd, this is what the Bereans did. They received the word with all uh, eagerness. And then what? Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things Paul was teaching them were, were so. They didn't hear Paul's message and ask themselves if they felt Paul's message was true. They didn't follow their hearts and decide whether they liked the message or not. They examined the scriptures. They put it against the standard of truth to see if it was true, and it was. The word of God is our first line of defense against bad trees and false gospels. But friends, stick with me. It's not enough. That's not enough. We also need with that the community of the church. One of the ways to ensure that we walk in deception and lies and not in the truth is when we isolate ourselves from other believers. And right, it fits with the ravenous wolf metaphor, right? Which sheep is the easiest in the flock to pick off and devour, right? The one that's by itself, separated. So Satan is fine with us doing our own devotionals by ourselves, reading our Bibles and coming up with all these thoughts of God because we're going to go off on tangents and we have no sense of accountability. We won't even know how far we've drifted because God has designed us to live in community. We were meant to do life together, to follow Jesus together, to know truth together. We are a family, a body, living out one another's of scripture together. Just like those Bereans, Jesus has designed us to be communal creatures, to need each other. So that's why we meet together, not for an hour once a week in a big group, which is good, but we meet together in smaller communities, like community groups and Bible studies and other small groups to walk out this kingdom life together and to help correct and encourage one another in the truth of the gospel, to keep ourselves with a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. One of my favorite things about serving on staff here is our teaching team. I love the men that I get to work with. And you know what I love most about them? When they tell me I'm wrong. They love me enough to say, 
man, you're not seeing that, I think, the right way. Because I need them, even I need them, the community of the church, to keep me with a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. I will drift by myself. So we need not just the word, but we need the community of God's people, the church. But that isn't enough. (laughs) It's like a game show. But wait, there's more. In fact, studying the word and actually being active in church can be dangerous without this last crucial piece to knowing and anchoring ourselves to the truth of Jesus. We need God. We need his spirit in us. The Spirit is the one who takes that word, the scripture we study, who takes the community of the church together and who supernaturally teaches and leads us into right thinking and true living together, who moves us together to keep a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So how? How do we get this Spirit in us? That brings us full circle, all the way back around to the very great choice that Jesus put before the crowds that day. Him or anything else, that, there are, that there's a choice above all choices. What kingdom are we living for? Again, two choices, two paths, two trees, two houses, and they are all about two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness, hearts running from God, rebelling against God, and seeking to replace God in our lives, in our own kingdoms, And that's what the Bible calls sin. And this kingdom of sinful darkness we live in leads to destruction and damnation. Or there's the kingdom of light. God's kingdom where he reigns, love flourishes, forgiveness and mercy and rest and peace abound in holiness and its joy never ends. So how? How do we go from the kingdom of our own sinful darkness to the kingdom of God's light and glory? Again, by laying down any hopes of trying to save ourselves and trusting that Jesus alone can save us from the darkness of our sins, that our one true king of heaven left heaven, took up a body and walked this earth, and he never once sinned, never once rebelled against God uh, in sinful darkness, but he walked in perfect, obedient holiness in every moment. And this holy God-man of perfect righteousness did the un imaginable. When our sins deserve death and condemnation, the sinless King Jesus stepped in to save us. By taking the cross of condemnation from a holy God, our sins deserved on himself. And on that cross, all of God's justice against our evil was poured out on him. He paid for our sins by his life, by his suffering on that cross. The author of life taking upon our death. And he chose to do it. His great choice. He chose to do it for us, to rescue us, because our king loves us. And there is no other way. He traded with us, taking our record of sin on himself and giving us his perfect record of righteousness. He was condemned so we could be forgiven. Our king died so uh, we could live. And how do we know that our debt of sin was fully paid for, that the curse of sin and death was defeated, that Jesus' kingdom and himself was victorious? How do we know that? Because our crucified king rose again to new life. 
The debt was paid. Sin and its curse were defeated. Our salvation sealed because our crucified king stepped out of that tomb alive, triumphant, never to die again. Our king and with him his forever kingdom of glory and our entry into it by grace. So how do we enter into this forever kingdom where sin and death are trampled underneath his feet? How do we obtain this eternal heavenly citizen, this salvation? Again, it's the choice before you, the choice to just believe, to stop trying, to lay down our kingdoms and receive his. It's by grace, which means we don't deserve this kingdom. It's a gift. It's by faith, which means it's not about our doing, but our trusting. And it's by Christ. It's about, it's about what he did for us, not what we do for him. And that moment we choose to believe, that moment we cry out for his kingdom, that moment we are made new, we are forgiven, we are adopted into his family, we are granted citizenship into that kingdom, and with that we are given the gift of God's spirit in us. The spirit that leads us into the truth, that helps us know Jesus and his word, the spirit that binds us together as one family with one another in the community of God's church. It's the spirit that leads us to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And it's that same spirit that helps us recognize the poisoned false fruit of the false gospels of this world. This spirit that without it, we remain lost in our own sinful kingdoms. But with this spirit, we hold in us the very nearness, presence, and power of God our great shepherd's voice inside of us, the salvation and entrance into his forever kingdom of grace. So let me tell you, for those in this room who have made that choice, who have seen the crossroads that Jesus puts before him, his kingdom or ours, his grace or our performance, and have chosen his kingdom and his grace, the words of Paul that he says right now are true of you as they were when he first wrote it, which is this. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is your crossroad moment. What kingdom do you live for? What is your hope? Because friends, life is a series of choices, but nothing is more important than this one. What path are you on? What fruit are you eating? What foundation are you building on? What kingdom are you living for? Jesus's or yours? Choose King Jesus today. Trust and be entered in by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for what he has accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection, all for the glory of God alone. And whether you are trusting Jesus now for the first time, or maybe you trusted Jesus and made that choice 30 years ago, let us all press in together in word, in the church, in spirit, and live for a kingdom that calls us to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. So friends, what is God calling you right now?
Maybe he's calling you right now to make that first choice. You've been living for your own kingdom. You've been trying to prove yourself. You've been trying to live life on your own terms. And you say, I need a rescue. Jesus, I need your salvation. I need your kingdom. And the choice before you is you need Jesus. Or maybe, friends, you made that choice before. You know Jesus. You follow the king. But you've still been holding on to your own kingdom in many different ways. You've still been trying to prove yourself, to control yourself, to live under your own terms, and there's part of your kingdom that you haven't surrendered yet. Right now, wherever you are, whatever path before you, choose King Jesus. Let's pray together. It is unimaginable, Jesus, that while we were yet sinners running from you, trying to build our own selfish kingdoms and glory to our own names, lost and dead, you came and pursued and rescued us. The king of heaven wrapped yourself in flesh and blood. The king of heaven took our cross to pay the justice against our kingdom building. And by grace, you invite us to believe and trust and enter into your kingdom of grace by faith. So Lord Jesus, I'm praying for us in this room those that need to make that choice for the first time to surrender to you, to give themselves to the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that only Jesus offers, that they would make that choice now. And for the rest of us that have made that choice, that do know you, whatever we're holding on to in our own kingdoms, that we would lay them down at your feet right now, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And let us sing and proclaim the fact that we can make these choices with hope because Jesus is alive. Our King and his kingdom reign forever. May, he, may his name be the glory, now and forever. Amen.